0: Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I am honored to be speaking with Dr. Natalie Bruscor, who is an archaeologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Groningen. Natalie's research focuses on human-animal relationships and how animals have shaped humans' lives. She received her PhD from Leiden University in 2019 for her work on the rock art of nomadic herders in the Black Desert of Jordan and their interactions with the desert landscape. So thank you so much, Natalie, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So first, could you provide a bit more context for your research? So I just summarized it as focusing on the rock art of nomadic herders in the Black Desert of Jordan. But what does that mean exactly? So what objects or artworks did you look at and by whom and from what period?
1: So there, I guess, say there are two parts to the research I did. The first was that I was part of a larger research project. So um, this isn't just uh, my own work, but several colleagues. And we had a large research project where we were really trying to understand these nomadic herders who were inhabiting what is often called the Black Desert in uh, Northern Arabia. And then we were focusing specifically on Northeastern Jordan. And uh, they were there in what is often called the Hellenistic and Roman period. So we're talking about sort of the end of the first millennium BC and the beginning of the first millennium AD. Um, And in this period, there were several changes in sort of the ruling of Arabia. There was the Nabataean Empire and later came the Roman Empire. So there was a lot going on. And fair amount is known about that, but what exactly was happening in what is often referred to as the marginal regions, but were by no means marginal. The desert region, there's much less known about that. Who were the people who were there, who were these nomadic peoples, and what were they doing and what was their culture like? And what was their economy like? And that's what our project as a whole was trying to sort of understand. And, and my part in that was to look at the rock art because they uh, left behind thousands of engravings throughout the desert, textual engravings and pictorial engravings. So what we often call rock art, but in many places in the world, the US, for example, you would refer to them as petroglyphs, all sort of the same same thing, engravings into rock. And this is what I was studying, uh, these images, through these images, trying to understand, well, who, who were these people And what I was especially interested in was what was their relationship to the landscape and the relationship to the animals that lived there and the relationship to each other.
0: And what is the role of literacy? Um, Because you mentioned not just figural artworks, but also inscriptions. So what language or languages were people producing these inscriptions in? How many people would have been able to read them? Who were they produced for? what was are there common themes in the content of the inscriptions?
1: Those are really good questions, and um scholars still don't have the answer to a lot of them, but of uh, what we can say is that um yeah, the inscriptions were uh, they're part of a sort of wider tradition called the ancient North Arabian script. You can call it a language group or a family of languages that was at least written at the time uh, to the extent it was spoken, I don't know. And within that, you had various different scripts. And the one that was uh, that we find inscribed into these rocks in this particular part of Northern Arabia is safiatic And there are several others, um, but the one that we are we were really focusing on is the safiatic script. And I find it mainly inscribed into these rocks, but there are also some instances of, for example, on pottery. And it's been found pretty widely, but really, it's really part of this sort of black desert area. And there are a lot of questions about how widespread was literacy, who was writing these exactly, that are hard to answer. But what we do know is that people left their names, and the majority of these names are men, uh, men's names, so that it seems that for the most, uh, men were creating these engravings and and the company images and they are they're also not just you know writing about whatever that came to their mind they're focusing on some particular uh, different themes which include things like prayers to deities or mentions of migrations or moving or mentions of the seasons and For a large part, they claim ownership of the images they're making. So they refer to the image, like, by this person is the camel, for example. And that's a very big part of what we we found in our area.
0: So you wrote in your dissertation um, and in your book about the sort of prevailing theory of why these inscriptions and engravings were made was as a sort of idle pastime. that herders, these nomadic pastoralists would be on a lookout, be sort of watching over their flocks, or they would be looking out for raiders from other tribes, things like that. And to pass the time, they would make these carvings. What do you think about that theory? Do you have, you know, what's the sort of evidence for against? Do you have any other theories as to why like what was the purpose of all of these as you said hundreds of thousands of inscriptions why were people making them
1: yeah so that's um the pastime theory is one that's been discussed a lot and i think there are through my research i found that there are some merits to it but there are also some evidence that speaks against it uh, the idea is as you very neatly summarize is that they were these nomadic pastoralists would spend long periods of time in certain places on the lookout for example and that in general the the idea is that as nomadic herders they would have long periods of idle time or time where they're just spent watching their herds grazing or on the lookout for game uh, animals to hunt for example and that then in this period they would then be making rock art to sort of pass the time away or or writing an inscription in some way like a sort of I was here or as you know people today would like graffiti a place where they're they're kind of hanging out on a bench somewhere and then they write I was here or carve it into the wood and uh, when I looked at the, the the distribution of these carvings through the landscape I studied where do we find them in the landscape do they occur in certain places and one of the things that I found was that Yes, they do really accumulate in places that are up in high places in the landscape and places that would have functioned really well as vantage points, you know, right on the top of a peak of a very tall hill where from there you would have a great view, extensive view of, for example, a valley where you could be um, pasturing your camels. So in that sense, that, you know, that kind of fits with this theory that this could have been places where they where they spent time being on the lookout for example on the other hand what I also saw is that um, when I looked into well how were these engravings made you see that especially the images there was a lot of time put into it this desert region is a, a rocky desert it's and it's mainly formed of, of basalt and basalt rock is is hard a really hard rock and if you want to carve into that it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time as well and especially if you want to do it well um you know my colleagues and i while we were there we had some go at it because you know why not well it was pretty difficult and it was really hard to make anything that looked anywhere decent so that's sort of one of the things that shows well these people weren't just you know idly doodling they were really putting a lot of effort into it and it took a lot of time and also one of the things you also see is that in the inscriptions and in the images there are set themes and set things so there are some things they do draw and there are some things that they don't draw and if it is just sort of an idle pastime, you can imagine they would just maybe doodle whatever they're seeing in the world around them but no there are certain things they did and certain things they didn't so that kind of speaks to well this probably had more meaning this this meant more to them and and had a, a deeper purpose than that
0: You also made an interesting point that I, in your book, that I never would have thought about, but makes complete sense about the sound and how this is a loud activity, like carving into rock and sound travels in the desert in ways you sort of wouldn't expect. And that if you're on a lookout, you know, and you're trying to be subtle and keep a low profile, you're maybe not going to be Carving and hammering into basalt. No, Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting (laughs) to think about as well, just from the like practical production side of things. In what context people would have been making these artworks?
1: Yeah, exactly. If you were up there carving something, people would be able to hear you from very far. Like the sound travels really far in the desert, so you wouldn't be able to do that very inconspicuous. (laughs) I can't imagine. You know, if you're if you're on the lookout and you're waiting for you know, you're hoping a herd of gazelles will pass by that you can, um, I doubt you want to make yourself so uh, noticeable.
0: Right. So going more into the placement of these engravings, which you just touched on about them usually being located in sort of high places, peaks, prominent locations. Can you just expand more on that about sort of where they're commonly located and then who would have been seeing them based on that information like would it have exclusively been other sort of nomadic pastoralists who would have seen these engravings or were they along other trade routes or roads that would have been trafficked by other people yeah so you we
1: see this kind of like this desert region with which is full of. You have to imagine it as you've got these hilly peaks, this basalt, covered in basalt, and then in between you have valleys covered in sort of loose gravel. And if you're traveling through this region, whether that's to pasture uh, your animals on, as you know nomadic herders moving according to the seasons, or whether you're on a trade route, you would mainly pass through these. You would, you would walk through the valleys because that's easy to, tra- to traverse and the basalt hills are, are really quite difficult. And if you do cross them, then you would go in probably pretty certain places where there are sort of already you know natural paths in the landscape. And, and what I found was that on the one hand, you see that the, the carvings are placed on hills that surround these valleys so that they're near places where people would have passed, passed by but you don't find them at the bottom of the hill or on the middle of the hill. You find them all the way on the top and they generally really concentrate in a peak on that hill. So they're not just scattered wherever they're really in a, you know, big accumulation on the peak of a hill. So the, the point you made about, you know, would it be other, for example, other nomadic birders that would have seen them? um, That's, that's my guess, because uh, these are places that you would visit if you were, for example, passing through this landscape, maybe you're camping on the easier terrain below. And then if you're pasturing your camels or you're on the lookout for game or even on the watch out for enemies, then you would sit in the vantage points high up. But you wouldn't go there if you're just passing through the region on a trade route, for example, um, because mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a lot of effort
0: to get up there. So, you know, you mentioned your research focuses on the Hellenistic period. To what extent was... The Roman Empire, let's say, sort of interested in this region. Would they, have anyone other than herders, have had a reason to traverse it? Was there other sort of occupation of this region that wasn't by pastoralists?
1: This isn't my area of expertise so much the, the historical context. So I'll um, I'll try to give a bit of insight into it. Better. Sure. If I- Making mistakes or I'm not up to date with the latest literature, then someone, my colleague, will have to correct me later. So this is a in some ways an inhospitable region, but it has changed a lot as well over the last century or so. And there's where we worked only some 30 kilometers away, there's a town which today is very dry, but Mm. up until you know just 50 years ago, it was a huge oasis. And so there was a lot more would imagine this region had a lot more water and had a lot more green and a lot more wildlife than it does today. So I think in that sense then it is was probably more attractive for to live there or or to migrate through there than than it looks today. But still it does seem that it was mainly like the people who came there were mainly herders. And the evidence we find is, you know, back to like the 7th century BC, you already see mm. evidence of herders there with, with sheep and goats. And I think in the, in the period we're talking about, it would mainly have been these nomadic herders who passed through the region. And, and based on the inscriptions, they seem to have had different places where according to the season, you know, they would go to then slightly more north in the summer and, and more south in the winter. For example, the Roman Empire, we know they were uh, nearby. The, this town I mentioned, Azraq, there is a fort there. There's evidence of the Romans being fairly nearby. And there are also inscriptions that mention, that that reference uh, Romans or Roman events, sometimes in hostile terms, sometimes not. So we know they were nearby, uh, but we don't really know exactly what the relationship was between you know, the indigenous people and the, the Roman uh, empire that was there at that time, and how far they came into the desert, or how much they influenced each other.
0: You described a little bit already the content of the inscriptions, um, and what the textual inscriptions frequently say. What about the artwork? Um, You mentioned that there are sort of common themes that recur, and that there's a very sort of specific iconography that recurs frequently in all of these engravings can you talk a little bit about what those are
1: the most the most part of the the imagery is really animal imagery so depictions of animals that dominate the rock art and what we see is that there's you have certain themes and i think the the rock art as far as region that I studied and the assemblage I studied and comparing that to what we find in the broader region, what I found is that you see three main themes and one of it is a sort of pastoral theme, which that is, for example, the dromedary camel, which is really the mostly widely depicted subject matter in all of this rock art is the dromedary camel. Uh, so that makes up like a third of all the images are camels. And then we get these scenes where, for example, there's a mother camel uh, nursing uh, a young camel. Yeah, kind of calls to mind like a a pastoral scene. And then we have a lot of hunting and and wildlife. So you get a lot of wild animals that are depicted. And scenes of people hunting animals, but also animals hunting other animals. So lions hunting ostriches, for example. And then we have these, these combat scenes where you see people uh, fighting each other or even scenes where people are raiding raiding camels for example and then here and there you get these few sort of very odd interesting rarer images like for example um there are images of of women which are depicted in huge detail and larger than life and we have these strange abstract symbols which often for example dots that are always occur in in sevenfold or lines that are always occurring in sevenfold, so that's sort of a recurring thing as well. But by far and large, it's uh, yeah animals that, that dominate the rock art.
0: Okay, and so why are camels the most prominent? We can infer from their prominence in the rock art that they're important in the pastoralist lifestyle. Yeah. Why? Why is that?
1: One of the main things we could we could say is that the camel was the camel was very important, was essential really to how this region developed over the last the last few millennia. So after the camel was the, the dromedary camel, then, after it was domesticated and, and introduced across Arabia, it really kind of changed the nature of the region because um, until then, with sheep goat herding, Um, but also traveling via, for example, donkey or horse. Um, A lot of regions weren't as accessible as they became once we had the camel. I mean, the camel has this very unique biology, means that it can traverse very difficult terrain, go long periods without water and without food. And at the same time, it offers a whole host of great products for people. I mean, you can use camel wool to make fabrics from, and you can use camel dung to Uh, heat your fire camel milk to drink uh, meat of course so they have a whole sort of you know a lot of advantages over the the animals they they had up until that point that's sort of the maybe if you want to call it the economic side of it that means that the camel would have been really important for these people and then at the same time something that you see happening across a lot of these societies um, that you also see in, in northern Africa for example is that the camel became socially really important as well. There's some evidence, there's evidence for it archaeologically, there's evidence for it ethnographically and, and, and textually for this period. But a lot of our, you know, our reference sources are also ethnographic. So the, the modern day Bedouin societies and there are a lot of parallels there between the Bedouin and the nomadic herders who were there a couple of millennia ago. And in these societies too you see that the camel is really just you know it's it's of utmost importance they're economically important but they're also socially important so there's a whole you know range of if you're you're getting married and how many camels can you get or give and your 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 status and your wealth is measured in how many camels you have and if you're going raiding for example then it's you know the horses are important because you're because you need them to be a good raider but the camels are that's like the prize (laughs) And that's something you know we see in these, um, we see in Bedouin societies, and we've we've learned from them. And I think you see a lot of parallels that that could could mean the same thing in in this period of time. And we can't be sure, but I think that's what we see going on as well. And that's why they're depicting them so much in the rock art.
0: And so, what about the raiding and the depictions of intertribal warfare? I think that's something else that is paralleled in some ways in kind of modern. Bedouin society. What do the engravings that you studied tell us about the significance of raiding in ancient societies, how it was conducted?
1: Is it's hard to reconstruct it very well. But what we do get is in the the inscriptions, they mention it and they don't often go into a lot of detail, but they'll say things like he went on a raid or he was in a raiding party, or he was on the lookout for the raiding party so we know based on that that that, that occurred um, and there are different mentions of different names and tribes that so to some extent that there is also um, some conflict there but I that's not um, my area of expertise so much that so I'd have to ask one of my colleagues exactly what the yeah what the current state of the art is uh, on that but based on in the we know that it it occurred it was part of Their society and and presumably an important part. And then what we see in the rock art is that um, we sometimes see these depictions. We see depictions of people fighting each other. But most interesting, I think, is we see these depictions of people fighting each other around a camel, for example. So then you see the camel is like big and larger than life. And then you have these all, all little, like they're almost like stick figure people around it fighting each other. And then sometimes you'll have someone holding the camel. So I think uh, my theory is that these are depicting raiding, that they're raiding camels. Sometimes you'll see someone on horseback as well. And we also have a few images that depict people where they're on the horseback and then they are holding a spear and the spear is touching the camel. And, you know, years and years and years ago, decades ago, uh, the first people who looked at these thought, okay, hey, maybe this is. Camel hunting, and this was at a time when camels, there were still wild camels in this region. Um, but since then, what we've learned and and looking at sources on Bedouin is that actually, in for example, in Bedouin raids, when they would go raiding and they would raid camels, they would use their spear to touch camel to say, this is mine, and like flame it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's I think the same thing we're seeing in this rock art as well, is that they're like flaming the camel. Um, so that's the kind of evidence we have for uh, for, yeah, people going on raids.
0: To what extent should we think of the peoples that were producing this rock art as sort of a closed society? Like what evidence is there of their interactions with, the outside world. This is sort of one of those perennial questions when you're studying nomadic peoples, as to what extent and how did they interact with sedentary populations and vice versa? Is there evidence of that? Like to what extent can we say that there were interactions of these people with the sort of settled peoples around them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is the sort of internal question and i think there is a at least archeologically there's often this kind of tendency to see the empire as the core and then the, the nomadic peoples and often you know the indigenous people living around it as sort of the periphery and living in the margins and you know there's this yeah very false idea that that was you know you have the core and then you have the the nomadic herders who were were who doing their own thing on, on on the margins and there was maybe very little interaction or what interaction there was it was the Empire that was you know initiating it, for example, mm-hmm. and that's this I think this tendency there has been in in research and in scholarship and luckily you see that that's changing now because I think in many ways that, that's very false to to look at it from that perspective, and that what we actually see is that well, maybe uh, these people were part of much larger networks, and especially if we consider how vast the trade routes were during that period and a lot of the trade routes would have passed by these uh, regions that we're studying and would have made them actually very important crossroads and in that sense it's hard to get really clear evidence of it but it's very likely that they participated in it or were a very important part of it even and there is some, you know, there's different evidence for, for example, through pottery or the finding of coins and definitely also through the inscriptions mentioning, you know, Romans or, or certain wars or certain events The Abitian. we know that they were a very aware and part of this bigger world and um, perhaps took part in it. And yeah, it's hard to say exactly to what extent, but they were definitely aware of everything that was, I sort of guess, the political climate around them.
0: And so when did these sapphietic inscriptions and this type of rock art that you studied, when did they end? Like in what period do they stop appearing in the archaeological record? Does this rock art transition to kind of a new form? Like are there more modern parallels to this type of rock art?
1: It's hard to say for sure. Scholars have placed a place to sort of Cut off date on these inscriptions and in rock art around the fourth century AD. And that's mainly based on the fact that they don't mention Christianity, or, or at least very few, uh, as far as I know. Uh, so based on that, you know, the fact that they do generally mention various historical events and political events, then the fact that they don't mention Christianity, or to a very little extent at least, seems to suggest that in the period when christianity was then arising and and in this region that they were no longer being made uh, but we don't know for sure it's hard to say and is that because they moved to a different region did they migrate or did it stop altogether or did they become part of a larger tradition or maybe they just where the people were still there but they stopped making rock art for some reason and we don't really know why That that's something that's the moment really hard to get a grip on and uh, that's one of the questions we're still really interested in we we'll also see for a very long time that there's very little rock art being produced that we can really date to later centuries so there seems to be a whole gap where there's not yeah there seems to be nothing being produced perhaps some things here and there and then later there is some rock art from the last two centuries so dating again is difficult but maybe like at least the 18th 19th 20th century find what are called and often referred to as tribal marks but that's not really an accurate uh, name uh, but these these smaller marks that seem to be or could be like the same kind of marks the brands that are placed on camels for example the brands to denote particular tribes or particular uh, families you see them being carved on rocks and that's something that's much more recent and there are even people who you know alive today who can tell us about them so there's there's still some form of rock art being produced and you even see sometimes you know in the desert we would find a rock art image of a coffee pot or um Mm. even a person holding a gun (laughs) so yeah there are still there are still some being made Mm -hmm. but it's not the same uh, yeah it's not really comparable anymore
0: right And so what is the other archaeological evidence for these peoples? You know, I think what makes this rock art particularly valuable is that there is rarely so much archaeological evidence for nomadic peoples and their lifestyles and languages and things like that. I mean, you mentioned briefly pottery and coins, um, but what are the other sort of archaeological assemblages that provide evidence for these people?
1: Yes, you're you're right, but it's, and it is quite a unique case in that we have all these engravings that can give us this insight into these people's lives, because often because of the very nature, like the nomadic nature of their lives, there's not that much evidence behind for us to find to sort of unravel unravel these societies. We have a fair amount in, um, in the Black Desert, and the main obstacle is connecting it to the rock art. So how do we know that the archaeological evidence we find is left behind by the same people who made the rock art? Even when we can date it, it it's hard to be sure. Um, what we do, what we have is, for example, a lot of stone structures. So I mentioned that this, you know, dissolved rocky desert. And there are a lot of structures built from these stones. And some of them are millennia old. But there are also some that have been dated to roughly the same period, in particular various burial cairns. We have these stone tombs that occur in the landscape, often in the same type of places where the rock art is found. And the the evidence from the tombs itself was quite poorly preserved because it's uh, because of the desert climate. Fine, the finds just don't preserve very well. But you do find some bones here and there of the people who are buried and some coins and pottery. Um, and the dates on those date them to roughly the same period as the rock art. But we don't know if they were made by the same people. Sometimes what you see is that stones containing rock art have been used to build a cairn um so you know you like find a stone with a camel that's upside down and it's been used to and then we've dated that and it's roughly the same period but apparently it you know is kind of ignoring the fact that there's rock art there or they didn't care or they're maybe even purposely destroying the rock art to build these funeral cairns so that's sort of one line of evidence, but it, yeah, we're still trying to sort of figure out how exactly they relate to each other, right. whether they were really there at the same time. Right. And then there are also, there's evidence for campsites, so places where people have probably camped. There's some evidence for, for a hearth, and, and they also date to the same period with, yeah, remains of pottery, Hellenistic pottery, for example. So there's some evidence here and there that these people were there and they were, you know, carrying out activities, but it's kind of hard to. really relate the two.
0: And then maybe a sort of technical question for you about how you conducted your research. So you focused on a pretty specific region within this larger Black desert. How did you decide what area to focus on? And then how did you find and document uh, this rock art within this area?
1: The region itself wasn't uh, chosen by myself, but by our project leader. I mentioned I was part of a larger project, which had already been going on for a number of years. And this was chosen um, already several years before I started uh, by the project leader. And partly for one of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that it's sort of situated very near uh, crossroads in the trade routes. So that was sort of one of the reasons to investigate there, because yeah, that could be a really interesting place to, to look for for archaeological evidence. And then uh, within the region itself, we tried to cover a very, you know, a representative amount of the different types of landscape you have there, and the diff- different types of terrain you have. And then, um, you know, the actual sort of nitty-gritty of documenting uh, was really a lot of what we call surveying or field walking. So. In you know a systematic way traversing the reversing this region and looking for for evidence of, for example, these stone structures and the rock art and the inscriptions. So that's what we would you know really just day by day, go, yeah, uh, in a systematic way look for them and then document them.
0: So maybe a final question for you. What is the future of this research? What findings do you think could be made with more sophisticated technology or with more resources dedicated to this sort of research? What sorts of things would you like to uncover or do you hope could be uncovered in the future?
1: There are a lot of, a lot of things. There are so many interesting things that could, still, uh, that could still happen because we're really in the beginning phase of, of this research. But I think two so two avenues that would be really interesting is on the one hand the you know these inscriptions that I I mentioned they've they've actually had a very long scholarly history they've been they've been studied by a lot of people and very intensively and there's a lot of really good research on them but the rock art uh, that I looked at has received very little attention in in comparison and I've been one of the first to really to really dive into it and I think and then something that therefore I didn't really have a lot of time to do was to get into a really good comparison of what's happening in the inscriptions and what's happening in the rock art. And I think that's something that could be, that would be really good for future research to, to see, you know, what are these two different types of, you know, there are two different types of media, but they're occurring together. And why were people writing about one thing, but drawing another thing, for example? And there's, I think there's so much to be explored there. And that's also something that you know, is maybe a problem in in a we look at it from a disciplinary perspective that you know we have linguists and philologists and, and epigraphers who are looking at the inscriptions, and then there are archeologists who are looking at the rock art. And I think to really push it forward, we need to get more do more interdisciplinary research. That would mm-hmm. be really great. That's one thing, and then another, which I think would be really interesting, is to also get a lot more local involvement and uh, local outreach because there's also, you know, we we always had a representative from the Department of Antiquities working with us. And, you know, there's also from that department interest, but there's also a lot of people who don't even know that they're there. They don't know of the existence of these peoples or, or the engraving they left behind, or if they do know about it, there's don't know exactly what it means. And I think it'd be really interesting to work more with the local community and especially because there's among them also so much more knowledge about the landscape and the region and its history so working together would really uh, yeah would really move things forward and bring some new interesting collaborations in
0: this region so i said that was a final question but something you just said made me curious about something else are there concerns about the conservation or preservation of these carvings you know you mentioned that the desert climate um, isn't always conducive to long-term preservation um, of some of these objects is that something you have to think about at all about how these objects sort of weather and degrade and things like that are there measures to try to protect these carvings or anything like that
1: that's definitely a concern yes there's a lot of these are weathered and are weathering more and more, and eventually will, you know, disappear. So there is a concern that if we don't document them, eventually they they will be lost, and this this whole sort of treasure trove of information will be lost. And then on the other hand, a concern that also really uh, big is that there's a lot of loosing of these these burial patterns that I mentioned. They're quite often looted in the process. The, these archaeological structures are destroyed but because there's so much rock art and inscriptions around them they're often destroyed as well and mm-hmm. it's to the point of sometimes with dynamite being used to, you know, to blow them up to, to easily get to what might be within and so that's that's a big point of concern as well and there's not really a whole lot being done I mean there, there, are, there are local efforts but there's a lot more that can be done and probably should be done if we really need to protect this, this heritage So, yeah, that's definitely that's something that needs more attention.
0: Okay, well, I promise that was my actual final question this time. Thank you so much for coming on to share your research.
1: Thank you for uh, all of your really interesting questions and uh, for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Natalie Bruce Gore for coming on to talk to me. I'll post some links and images and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomadspod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening.